0: Well, what assurance do you have that the Scripture is trustworthy? After all, you are trusting the words contained in your Bible in order to get you to heaven. How can you know for certain that what you've been taught all of your life concerning Christianity is true? Where do you turn to assure yourself Or to verify with evidence that what other Christians have taught you is true and trustworthy. Well, thankfully, the Scriptures, doesn't it, testify that it is a reliable and trustworthy record of divine truth? This is what our statement of faith affirms. Quote, it has God for its author salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. In other words, we believe that if God is the author of the Scriptures, and God is a perfect God, that God would not lead Or deceive his people. He wouldn't lead us into uh, the wrong way or to deceive us. He's a holy God. If these are his words, then they must be true and they must therefore be trustworthy. If they are true, then they are trustworthy. This is why, for example, the Bereans, after hearing Paul preach regularly, they would go home and study the Scriptures. And Luke records in the book of Acts that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, they wanted to make sure that what the Apostle Paul taught was confirmed in the Old Testament Scriptures. And lo and behold, as they studied, they found that the Apostle was right. That what he was teaching and revealing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was correct and confirmed in the Scriptures. In other words, We affirm as Protestant Christians, we affirm a truth called, uh, well, we won't name the specific doctrinal, but it is this that Scripture interprets Scripture, that the church doesn't interpret Scripture, that the church doesn't have authority over the Scripture, that the church doesn't create the Scriptures. Okay? Uh, we didn't sit down and say, okay, uh, the church is going to say that these books are in and other books are out. Rather, it was through the work of the Holy Spirit that God spoke through these messengers and we have received them as divine revelation. It's important when we study the scriptures to understand that this is a divine record. We want to caution ourselves from saying that, well, these are Luke's words or these are Matthew's words. Yes, God used men to speak, but it was God who spoke. God used their particular personalities and character and, and the particular peculiars about them. They are different writers. Matthew doesn't write the same way that Luke writes. And no one writes as similar to what John does. Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot. As well. But what we find this morning in beginning this particular book is of the beloved physician Luke. The letter itself, the book itself, does not give us an author. We don't learn of the authorship of this book, not until the book of Acts. Now, you may not be familiar with the Bible, but the book of Luke and the book of Acts are a A one two punch. Uh, Volume one is what we have recorded as the Gospel according to Luke. And volume two of this author's work is the Acts of the Apostles, or what you've probably just known as the Book of Acts. Uh, Both written by the same author. And halfway through the, the, the Book of Acts, all of a sudden, the pronouns begin to change, and the author inserts himself into the story. It changes from about what the apostles were doing to what we were doing, and through that we can surmise who the author is, none other than Paul's traveling companion, Luke. The early church also testified to the reality that Luke was the author of both this letter and the one we know as Acts. Even a heretic named Marcion affirmed that Luke was the author, and if a a heretic is affirming it, we could see perhaps there's some validity in it. We're told in Colossians 4.14, what we studied last week, that Luke was the beloved physician, he was an early companion to the Apostle Paul. Uh, he traveled with him on his missionary journeys. And, and Luke here, we're told, has picked up his pen to write to a dear friend, to write to his friend Theophilus, who we really know nothing more about than these two letters, uh, to write to them and, and to assure him of the things that he has come to believe. Luke writes to provide an eyewitness testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus, to testify to what he's done and how he lived. Luke is different than the other gospel writers of Matthew and Mark and John. Matthew and John, of course, were Jesus' disciples. Uh, Luke was not. Mark, we, if you study the Gospel of Mark, you learn that John Mark was uh, on the outer circle, if you will. He, he used to hang around Jesus. He is, uh, he, he's related to Peter, the Apostle Peter, uh, one of Jesus' early disciples. And so Matthew, Mark, and John are all written by an, a close associate of Jesus. Luke is unique in that his Gospel message comes from eyewitness testimony. In other words, Luke is like an early day reporter he goes and interviews a bunch of different um, people who were there. And so when we get into this, and as we begin to study this, we're going to find some unique material, unique only to Luke. Because, for example, how would he know what Elizabeth thought when she was in her chamber as she prayed to God if he didn't interview Elizabeth? Or Mary and some of the intimate details about Mary treasuring up in her heart what was going on in the midst. Well, these are unique eyewitness testimonies to what took place in those early years of Jesus' ministry. And of course, not only that of these eyewitness accounts, we, he was a regular travel companion of, as I've said, the Apostle Paul. Many throughout the history of the church has called this Paul's gospel. In other words, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is a testimony of the ministry and work of not only Jesus, but of the Apostle Paul and the, the traveling ministry and missions that he did. We're told in the book of Acts, or rather in, the, in 2 Timothy, that in Paul's final days prior to his execution, that it was Luke alone who had stood with him. When everyone had abandoned the Apostle Paul, it was, it was Luke who was there by his side. A testimony to the kind of man that Luke was, the kind of Christian that he'd become. One who was about getting the details right of the story, and one who was loyal to the Apostle Paul. Well, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to consider this morning just the first four verses. Now, don't get scared. Uh, we are not going to go that slowly through this book. We will we'll go to more of a 30,000-foot view, covering a lot of material in, in a short amount of time uh, in the weeks ahead. Let me encourage you. One of the tools that we give you each week is by printing in the bulletin um, what Scripture will be in the following week. And given the fact that we're covering such a large amount of Scripture, so next week we'll be considering uh, chapters 1 and most of chapter 2, uh, let me just commend you reading ahead, uh, so that your mind can be fully informed as you come, having already kind of studied some of what is coming up. But this morning, verses one through four are before us, Luke writes: "Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who for who for who." from the beginning, where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What's Luke's point as he begins? In this prologue, Luke points out a particularly important point as we begin our study, and it is this, that the Scripture is a trustworthy revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we can trust it as the means to know the one true and living God. Luke makes clear in his introduction here, in this prologue, that what he's about to write is Holy Scripture, and that it is a means of God's grace to give certainty where there is doubt. Paul or excuse me Luke writes with a particular aim in mind and that is to bring assurance of the trustworthiness of what we read and so he sets out to write with a particular aim in mind he has a purpose in mind Uh, Some authors seek to bury their purpose later in the letter. So, for example, in John's Gospel, John waits till the very end in chapter 20 to to reveal the purpose of why he wrote. Uh, Mark uh, does it similarly, uh, revealing his purpose throughout. And right here, Luke front loads the whole letter by saying, look, this is why I've picked up my pen to write. And so he has a particular aim in mind namely to provide assurance to his readers of the reliability and trustworthiness of the gospel message. In other words, to give you and I assurance that what happened there in Galilee, what happened there in Jerusalem really did happen, that we have eyewitness testimony to the reality, but more than that, we find the theological significance. In other words, Luke is not writing a historic biography of Jesus. He's not writing us a biography of the man Jesus, but rather he is telling us why Jesus came and the glorious truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save us. So as we consider these first four verses here this morning, we see first that he gives us his content He tells us what he's going to tell us, then he tells us who his sources are, then he tells us how he's going to go about telling us, he gives us his outline, if you will, and then finally he concludes with his goal, what was the the purpose in writing In the original language here, this is one long sentence, Um, so he must have picked up something from the Apostle Paul, and that was writing really, really long sentences, and uh, verses one through four is a very long sentence, and we hope to just spend just a moment considering each of these four points here. Number one, Luke's content. Luke begins in this way, "...inasmuch as as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." There's a number of things I want to point out to you. Number one, he refers to other gospel writers. He makes clear that his gospel is not unique. He's not the only testament to the, the reality of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We have a collection of synoptic gospels. Uh, Synoptic coming from the Greek word to see together. In other words, there are a collection of writings that give eyewitness testimony to what Jesus did. And we're, of course, not studying those, but we're studying this one before us this morning. And we notice here that he refers to them a compile, a narrative. Now, this seems to be misleading as we read it in the English. It, it isn't that Luke is just writing a biography, if you will, a, a story. Sometimes when we say the story of Scripture, we can conclude and say, well, it's, it's fairy tale, it's fiction. No, 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 not at all. What what Luke hopes to do here is report to us, like a good reporter, the facts of the events, but also, as we'll see, the theological significance of them. he says it as much here in verse 1. Look again. A narrative of what? Of the things that have been accomplished among us. In other words... (coughs) Luke writes in such a way, excuse me, (coughs) he writes in such a way as to demonstrate a promise-fulfillment he, he writes to tell us that what is happening is a fulfillment of what God had promised to do many, many years earlier. So if we were to fast forward to the end, right? You kind of want to get to the end of the story, and at the end you see a, a little bit of a conclusion. At the very end of Luke's gospel, <clears throat> we have Jesus speaking. And Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 24, and verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is, everything in the Old Testament, every letter, everything in the Old Testament, must be fulfilled Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In other words, Luke is writing from a promise fulfillment perspective. He's he's writing to Theophilus to tell him, listen, all those Old Testament promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Christ. This is what he means when he writes, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things that have been accomplished. Notice here, it is a past tense fulfillment. It's already been done. Theophilus, it's complete, it's done. Jesus has fulfilled what he set out to do. This is how the apostle Paul taught the church in Corinth. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for His glory. The Bible, and particularly this letter, the content of it we'll find is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And so over the next few weeks, we'll have a number of readings from Isaiah, for example, where we see Isaiah hundreds of years before the coming of Christ promising a Messiah that would come. This ought to give us assurance. This ought to encourage us. That God had a plan, a purpose before the foundation of the world to save sinners. And the fulfillment of that is in the one true and living God, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we see the content of what Luke writes. Thank you, brother. Secondly, though, we see in verse 2, Luke's sources. Where did he get all of the information that he has included in this? Where did he get these stories from? Well, look with me at verse 2. Luke writes, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. We see here in verse 2 that Luke's sources were eyewitnesses. And I want to emphasize that. In a day and age, in, in a scientific age that says that in order for something to be true, it must be visible, it must be tested, we ought to see that the Bible will stand up against a scientific age. Because these are eyewitness testimonies. These are eyewitness accounts. These are from people who ate and slept and had meals with Jesus. These are people who was Jesus' mommy and and Jesus' aunt. These are testimony from the very men who walked with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. The word minister is the word uh, to mean to be a courier or a servant of the Word. They were ones who were particularly set apart in order to convey to us the, the truth of God's Word. Well, this is how John would say it. In 1 John chapter 1, of course, John walked with Jesus. John was part of Jesus' inner circle. And John says it this way, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. uh, John is like, uh, we saw him with our eyeballs. Like, we, we touched him. He, he's using all the five senses. Short of licking Jesus, he says, you know, we know he was real. We touched him. We saw him. We can verify to you that Jesus did all the things that he said he did. And accomplished all the things that he set out. Jesus himself told his disciples that this was their responsibility. To be an apostle was to be a representative of Jesus, to speak on Jesus' behalf. And so John 15, 27, Jesus says, And you, talking to the disciples, will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You can see a parallelism between what Jesus said in John 15 and what Luke records for us right here in verse 2. That is, he gets eyewitnesses who are from the beginning of the of the story. He doesn't get secondhand information, but firsthand from those who were from the beginning. You can't get more beginning than than Jesus' mom, right? Or even backing up. Or as we heard earlier in Second Peter chapter one and verse sixteen. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter there in that passage I read to you earlier in our service is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's like, I was there that day, and John was there that day. And James was there that day, and we saw it. The apostolic witness is that we saw Jesus right before our eyes transformed into His transcendent, glorious state. He was the high and lifted. We heard with our ears. No one told us. No, it was just not hearsay. We heard it with our very ears, and we all looked at each other. Did you just hear that? Yeah, we heard that. That this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Friend, I wonder this morning, what more do you need than a bunch of eyewitness testimony if you won't believe what eyewitnesses are telling you? Of course, Jesus warned against such lack of faith, didn't he? Remember, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Thomas wouldn't believe the other disciples unless I see him, unless I touch him, unless I give him a big hug. I don't believe that he is raised from the dead. And Jesus went to Thomas that very next week and he revealed himself to him and he told Thomas, blessed are those who believe without seeing, who believe by faith. At the end of the day, if you don't believe these eyewitnesses, your presence there would not have changed your lack of faith. So his sources are eyewitness testimony And we see in verse 3 that his method is to give us an orderly account. It seemed good to me to write also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. In other words, Luke's method is to write an orderly account. This isn't just a midrash of some things. This isn't just a sort of a collection of wise sayings of Jesus. It's an orderly account. Now, this doesn't mean that it's chronological in order. It doesn't mean that he wrote in a particular orderly fashion that might naturally follow a a narrative. But there is a structure to this letter. For example, he begins with a prologue. Then he has the preparation for Jesus' ministry. In chapters 1 through 4, he tells us about some of the preparations that went into Jesus' ministry Then, the the book can be really divided into two halves. First, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and all the the events that surrounded Jesus ministering to the people in Galilee. And that takes us all the way to chapter 9 and verse 50. Then, there's this interesting phrase that that Luke records for us. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we see a definite shift in the behavior of Jesus. No longer will he do ministry there in Galilee, But in verse 51, it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the rest of the letter is taken up with Jerusalem as Jesus begins to set his focus on what's going to take place at Golgotha. As we see the death and resurrection of of Jesus in Jerusalem in chapters 19 through 24 being the, the climax, if you will, of the whole letter. Of course, the letter is going to lead us to that, isn't it? It's going to be about the cross. Luke writes to tell us why Jesus came, that we might have assurance. It seemed good to me, he says, having followed all things closely for some time. It's a reminder of the reliability of what Luke is recording for us. But we see lastly here in verse 4, Luke's goal. And it's important as we study this letter to remember this question. How does this story give me assurance of the things that I've been taught? How does the story of Elizabeth give me assurance? How does the story of Mary give me assurance? How, how do these stories give me assurance of the things I've been taught? This is what he writes in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke picks up his pen for this very purpose, that they would have certainty of the things that were taught. In other words, that they would have assurance that what they were taught was the true gospel. That what they had come to know and believe was what Jesus wanted them to know and believe. Well, what were the things that Luke is going to teach? What are the things, what are the theological truths that Luke hopes to accomplish? Well, Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts contributes a lot of our theological understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Throughout throughout this book, Luke will teach us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 15, we're told here, For he will be great before the Lord, that is, John, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're told in chapter 1, verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit that was working in the background to bring about God's work. We know it was in chapter 4 when Jesus was in the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit that sustained Him and carried Him. We also will see in this letter the priority of prayer. Jesus will teach his disciples the priority of prayer in the life of the disciple. We see Jesus will model prayer for his disciples. He will show them how to pray. So, for example, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. When Jesus prayed, he prayed alone, but he didn't pray In isolation, the disciples were always nearby that they could hear his prayer and follow his example. We also see Luke will teach us some theological truth about how God's people praise him. Worship is a very central part of Luke's gospel. In fact, the very beginning stories of the two sons predicted, and particularly the worship of Elizabeth, the worship of Simeon, the worship of Mary, and and throughout this very worshipful time in the first two chapters, in fact, Luke uses the word rejoice more than any other gospel writer. must be a pretty important theme. That God's people rejoice at what God is doing among them. We also see also, as he gives assurance to Theophilus, of God's sovereign purposes in salvation. So for example, in Luke chapter 4 and verse 21, we are told this truth, and began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, we see God is sovereignly working to bring about His purpose of salvation for His people. God has not abandoned His people, but by sending His Son, it was an assurance that God was once and finally and fully saving them. But also throughout this letter, we see Jesus' love for outsiders. Luke has a particular emphasis on the women in Jesus' ministry. More than any other gospel writer, Luke here focuses on the the, the importance of women in the life of Jesus. These would have been outsiders among the people there in Israel, but Jesus includes them in his inner circle. We see his love for children, his love for sinners, Probably the most radical thing he did was his love for Gentiles. Jesus loved those who were on the fringes of society. And as you imagine, Theophilus were being reminded about who Jesus was and the way Jesus, do you not think that affected how Theophilus then lived? Well, if my Savior loves outsiders, maybe I should too. Finally, we see in this letter, as as we'll study it, the centrality of the cross and resurrection. That it's all about the cross and the resurrection. That the hope that we have is found in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And there, He dies the death that we deserve. Friends, as we study this letter over the weeks and months ahead, I hope that we walk away with an assurance that what we have been taught all of our life is true. My hope in studying a letter like Luke is to kind of just get back to the basics, if you will. So often in our life, we can be tempted to follow a Jesus of our own imagination. Oh, my, my, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, the reality is, is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? With the Jesus of your own creation. And sometimes studying a a book like Luke can, can be refreshing, encouraging, and reorienting in our life. To get us back on who Jesus is, what was Jesus committed to? What was it that Jesus focused on in His life and in His ministry? Does our life reflect that of Jesus? Are we following the Jesus of the Bible? or our own Jesus. At the end of the day, my hope is that we would walk away with a a sense of assurance, a sense of confidence, of certainty, to know that we are standing on solid ground when we put our faith in Jesus. There was a man named William, born in 1494. He was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. He studied and taught at Oxford in England. He was an expert in Hebrew and Greek, a master of his trade. As he studied the Scriptures, and particularly translating the Scriptures, he came to an understanding of justification by faith alone, a Protestant doctrine. Therefore, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church as a heretic, and he was a gifted translator. And one of the things he gave himself to was translating the Bible in the English language. Now, you and I, we have literally English Bibles sitting around. We just toss them, throw them around. But during this particular period, the Bible was only accessible if you knew Hebrew, if you knew Greek, or if you knew Latin. And if you were just an average farmer, and you worked in agriculture, and you you, you weren't educated, you had zero access to Scripture. And William Tyndale had it on his heart that he wanted to get the, the Scripture available to the average day worker, the day laborer, the tradesman, the farmer, the housewife. And so in 1534, he set out to translate the New Testament from Erasmus' Greek New Testament into the English language. This would infuriate the king. King Henry VIII would not have it that someone at Oxford would be meddling in translating the Bible into English. And so, he would be locked away, imprisoned for a number of times, and then on October the 6th, 1536, as a heretic, particularly for his work of translating the Bible into English, he would die, being burned alive because of his work of making the Bible accessible to the everyday person. Fascinatingly and ironically enough, a number of years later, that same king would commission a group of scholars there in Cambridge to produce a Bible in the English language. William would execute and authorize the translation of the Bible, what would have been 60% of which of William's own translation. The translation that we know today is the King James Version. Why would Tyndale give his life to have the Bible in the language of everyday people? Knowing that he would be executed if he would put it into the English language. Why was he so consumed with us? Why did he care so much? Why would these men be devoted to the Scriptures in such a way that they would give their life to have it in a language of the common person? Because they knew it was transformative. They knew that the power of Scripture was such because these were eyewitness testimonies. This wasn't mere fairy tale. This isn't mere myth. These are the words of eternal life, and they are worth giving one's life.